Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this, and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, so I'm sitting here, and I'm talking to Dan Stevens of Illinois Learn to Hunt. And uh, Dan, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself for everybody listening? Sure, yeah. So uh, first, thanks for, for having us on here. We're out here at Deer and Beer Fest in, in Bloomington, Illinois. Been a good show so far. So uh, yeah, but a little bit about uh, our program. So we're the, the Illinois Learn to Hunt program, and we're kind of a, a unique program that's really designed to address this almost systemic decline in the number of hunters that we've seen in, in recent years. And this is a trend that's really occurring nationwide and has really started to garner you know national attention but this is kind of Illinois version and so we're a, a program that really focuses on adult hunter recruitment um, there's a lot of really good programs already established in the state that focus on on getting youth outside uh, whether it's it's pheasants forever NWTF whitetails unlimited the Illinois Conservation Foundation there's all these different groups that focus on youth you know hunter recruitment but there was really nothing for that person who has an interest, but for whatever reason, maybe they grew up in a family that didn't hunt. They don't know any hunters. They've lived in Chicago their whole life. So this program is designed as an educational pathway to give those individuals the, the confidence and the skill set they need to, to go hunting. So how, how did it come about, though? I mean, you guys recognized that there was a gap there and you lobbied. What, what, sure. What happened? So this, this is a program that is kind of a cooperative effort between the University of Illinois and the Illinois Department of Natural Resources. And so we are funded through kind of a unique funding mechanism called the Pittman-Robertson Act, also known as the Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act. And so these are, are grant funds that are distributed annually. But the really cool thing about this funding mechanism is 
it's essentially an excise tax that's placed on the sale of hunting equipment. So anytime you go buy a firearm, anytime you buy ammunition, anytime you buy a bow or arrows, there's an excise tax that's already pre-built into that price. It's kind of taxed at that manufacturer's level. And then states are awarded that money based on a specific formula from the feds that essentially looks at the number of hunting licenses sold each year, as well as the total land size of the state. And they kind of create this formula that divides that that total fund for the country and divides it, you know, how they allocate it to, to each individual state. The really cool thing about this funding is it can't be just thrown into the, the, you know, Treasury Department. It has very specific use cases, and one of those happens to be hunter education and hunter safety. And so this is how we can use some of those, those grant funds uh, to, to run this program. So it's kind of cool in that the more hunters we create, the more PR dollars we're getting. And so it's kind of this, this self-funding mechanism to, yeah. to some extent. Absolutely. Some of my favorite hunting spots are actually funded by the Pittman-Robertson Act and uh, restoration programs and stuff sure, like that. Sure. So. I totally get it. How did you guys feel about it when, uh, I can't remember his name, actually put forth legislation to try and repeal the Pittman Robertson Act? Yeah, yeah. It, it's one of those things that every every couple of years somebody gets kind of a, a spur up their, their backside to, to try to, you know, tackle the, the PR uh, bill. But what I would argue is it's such a unique funding mechanism. It gives us as hunters and target shooters so much say into how wildlife is managed. If, if that money is... For lack of a better term, we are the funders of conservation in this country. It is the backbone. Absolutely. It is hunters. It is shooters. And if you take that, that funding mechanism away, first of all, now you've got to get that money from elsewhere. And part two, now you're going to have these other groups that are you know, contributing funding to this, and that's going to give them a little bit more say in how that money is used, how wildlife is managed in the state. And so it's, it's a really important funding mechanism, and I think it doesn't get – enough attention from hunters and target shooters that hey you guys are the one that is funding conservation in this country yeah so what does illinois learn to hunt do at like a day-to-day level to try and get outreach and things like that sure and so we're a little bit of a a unique program from some other programs across the country every state has kind of delved into this realm of hunter recruitment kind of a, a more broader term we use is hunter r3 so that's recruitment, that's bringing in new hunters. We have hunter retention, keeping those existing hunters. And then we have re-engagement, so bringing those people who maybe hunted as a kid, but they got busy in life and dropped out. How do we bring them back into the fold? And what's really unique about our program is we are research-focused. And so not only do we have these outreach events where we host you know, mentored hunts, we host learn-to-hunt workshops, uh, webinars, podcasts, video series, but the ult- one of the ultimate goals is in addition to education and outreach, is to understanding who these new hunters are, what they need, but more importantly, what is keeping them from from hunting. So what are these constraints to participation? What are some of these maybe policy recommendations can be put forth that say, hey, maybe this is an area we need to look at reducing some regulation complexity. Maybe we need to make this process easier and smoother and and things like that. So it's really kind of a a multi-pronged approach at providing education, but also trying to understand who these new hunters are and what they need to put forth, you know, policy recommendations to, to make that process easier. Yeah. What do you what do you see as far as that? Who these new hunters are? Are they children mostly? Are they That's a, a really young good adults question. now that are getting into it? Absolutely. What, what do you see? So we're seeing a, a lot of young adults, especially our, our biggest market is the Chicagoland area. Um, obviously, that is kind of the biggest population center in the state, so it does naturally make sense. But what we're seeing is a lot of individuals who for lack of a better term, have been stuck in that concrete jungle their whole life. Mm-hmm. And they want to take that next step and not just go outside on a hike. They want to become a part of that system. They want to be 
a part of the, the food system. And so that's what we've really been seeing recently is this shift of people who just want to go hunting because they want a new out, outdoor activity. We're seeing a lot of our participants are really interested in providing that, that local kind of what we call organic protein for their for their families yeah. and so even though we know it's yeah, exactly. heavily gmo exactly. and <laughs> there's a lot of herbicides and pesticides there are. on the stuff sure that they eat, but, sure and then that's like people say you know oh this is the most organic meat you get on a duck and i'm thinking to myself how is that possible it's eaten every single field <laughs> yeah. from canada all the way sure. down to mississippi sure. and there's no way right that it around the bread and corn that, but yeah, yeah. <clears throat> maybe up if you catch them up in alberta after sure. they come off the nesting grounds or something like that you might be okay but, sure yeah, <laughs> but a lot of it is just, again, becoming a part of that system. And I think we yeah. saw it really heavily with COVID. We saw a pretty big uptick in our program participation. And I think a lot of it was just looking at the, the, the or, not organic, but the, the global food system that we've established in this country. We are very reliant on other people to provide food for ourselves and our family. Yep. And in terms of the human experience, that's a very new concept for us as humans. Historically, you know, we've hunted and gathered our whole lives up until... Yeah the past couple generations. I mean, realistically, you're looking at 60 years that, right, or less right. that people have been fully dependent Absolutely. upon the frail, yeah. very frail very food frail. system. Yes. I mean, you saw during the last pandemic that everything broke down and collapsed and, and store shelves were empty and all that stuff. And I, I agree with you. I think that did do uh, a bit of a change in the way people think about it and want to procure sure. food and all that kind of stuff. So, these people that come from the concrete jungle, I, you guys send them a lot towards my way because <laughs> I'm just south of there. Yep. I don't mind it, though. What do, you, what do you have to say to those people that are critics of that kind of thing? Because I know there is a lot of people who are like, why do you want more people on public land? It's crowded enough. Why would you want to do that? Sure. Explain to people why, why that's important. Now, I, I don't disagree <laughs> that public land in Illinois is crowded, and a lot of that is just the totality of public land Correct. we have in this state. If you compare it to every state around us, we are bottom of the barrel in terms of total land yeah. access. You know what bothers me about that, though? So there is quite a bit of public land, mm -hmm. especially even like county public land in Illinois. Sure. Especially the forest non preserves. non-huntable. There right. is so much forest preserve. And it seems to me that every single farm where the family, you know, somebody doesn't take it over and it goes up for sale, the state's buying it or the county is buying it and turning it into forest preserve. And, and that's just huntable land. And some of it every once in a while does get sure. converted. Sure. A lot of it around me actually gets turned into culling sites. And it makes me think, okay, we're completely, I understand the principle and the concept behind it, mm -hmm. right? We're dumping entire, but this is what gets me though. We're dumping entire truckloads full of corn to bring these animals in and then killing them by the hundreds. And then, okay, it sits for a while and then maybe potentially they turn it over. But then you look at the harvest numbers and it's like 200 hunter visits one animal harvested. Sure. And it's like, okay, maybe don't totally decimate the area. If you do, let people know that the data is available to look at it and go, wow, is that really even worth taking that one deer sure, <laughs> out, sure. out of the population? Sure. You know, there's a lot of things like that that bother me. That's not you guys. Right. I understand that. Sure. that that's management from a different aspect. But um, that, that is something that's kind of crazy to me. <laughs> and, and I'll, I'll kind of add a, a caveat. One thing you, you kind of mentioned, you know, this, why do we need more hunters out there? I, I, I want to really kind of pinpoint on, on that yeah. point really quick. One of the big things is, again, we kind of really reiterated the importance of funding through 
hunters and, and shooters. As this hunting population ages, I mean, we are really, in Illinois, we're losing about 2% of our hunters every year. And so every year, that population is getting smaller and smaller, but it's also getting older and older and older. So at some point in the next probably 15 or 20 years, we're really going to see this inflection point where we start to see a big churn and we start to lose a lot of hunters and just naturally aging out of the population. And so it's really important. And if you look at a, at a, a total graph of hunter, hunting license sales in Illinois, it's fairly flat through the, the 1930s, and we see this huge uptick after World War II. All these veterans were coming back, getting involved in the outdoors, and that was kind of the heyday of, of hunting license sales in Illinois. Ever since then, we've just seen it steadily go down and down and down. And it's really important, again, not only for funding, but also to manage wildlife populations is, is a big one, especially, you know, you kind of brought up some of the CWD sharpshooting. Mm -hmm. And if we can naturally use hunters to do that and to, to create new hunters through that, I think that's a, a, a great goal. Yeah, absolutely. And that just makes me think, though, all the northern Illinois, there there is a lot of ground. There is. That sure. could be hunted and managed. Yes. As long as people are trained properly. Sure. Maybe a vetting process so they can actually, you know, that they can place an arrow on target, mm -hmm. something like that. And I know a lot of places used to do that, and they don't even do that anymore because of the new permitting system sure. where you go online and get it versus a qualification. But it, it does bring up a good point, though, because uh, the, the amount of dollars you're losing, at what point do we see a tipping point, do you think, to where there won't be that funding anymore? I don't know, but it, 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 it's coming. It really is coming. Because if, if you go back to you know what we said about how that money is allocated, that specific formula. So if we're losing hunters, not only are we losing people purchasing guns, purchasing ammunition, purchasing other hunting equipment that may fall under that, that Pittman-Robertson dollars, but we're also losing a chunk of license sales, which if you remember, that's how that money is allocated at you know, the, the federal level to decide how much each individual state receives. And so as we start to lose hunters, not only are we losing those PR contributions of them purchasing equipment, but on the back end, we're also losing that, that kind of portion of the formula that allocates how many dollars Illinois receives from these PR dollars. Yeah. And so it, it's, it's really interesting. And there, there's a lot of other states doing really interesting work kind of in this realm. Um, Illinois in terms of the grand scheme of things, it's relatively new to Hunter R3. It, it's something that's been on the radar for, you know, maybe five or six years where Wisconsin's been doing stuff like this yeah. and focusing on it since the 90s. I think uh, um, I've got a friend that does something very similar to that in Iowa. Okay. And mm -hmm. it seems like they have a pretty well-established program and the different things they do. And uh, pretty cool to see. Now they're doing, trying to get, you know, more women, women involved sure. in and they've got uh, specialty programs just for them to where they feel comfortable in an environment where they're learning around other women and getting out in the field. And I think they even have a program where at the end of it, if they continue all the way through it and they go on the mentored hunt, they get to keep, you know, the bow that they oh, use cool. throughout the process sure, and sure. stuff like that. It's pretty neat to see that kind of thing. Hopefully maybe one day they can bring that into Illinois yeah. or something and, like and that. And that. that's one of the, the, the hardest parts about R3 is scalability. How do you scale a program like that to actually be – effective and cost effective because again yeah. we're trying to balance the, yeah. this loss of, of conservation funding we're trying to recruit new hunters but we also need to be conscious that it doesn't cost you know fifteen thousand dollars for every recruited hunter you get right and so it, it's yeah. scalability is one of those big challenges i think i think one of the biggest things and and a lot of people see it as a barrier maybe you can talk on that too is affordability people see hunting as a super expensive Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. And it shouldn't be. It shouldn't. And that, that's one thing we've really tried to focus on, especially at our in-person workshops. And, again, these are designed for people over 18 years of age or older 
who we, we view it as people who've never gone hunting, never picked up a bow, not a firearm. So we start, we anticipate them coming at a kind of a, a baseline zero. And so what we really strive for is to push that, hey, you don't need the Raven $5,000 right. crossbow. You don't need all the Sitka camel gear. If you have the disposable income and you want it, go right ahead. Yeah. But we, we really try to highlight the DIY aspect of things. And a lot of, of our content really focuses on public land hunting for that specific reason is that you can do it cheaply, you can do it affordably, but if you know what you're doing, you can also do it very, very effectively. Yeah. I think crossbow is a hot button yeah, sure, for sure. a lot of people. Yep. Even, um, you know, Pope and Young mm-hmm. and things like that. But I see it as a gateway drug. Absolutely. Right? Yep. Um, I have a crossbow. I took some friends that had never been hunting before. I took them on a hog hunt, right? A, a rich resource mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. just, you know, target-rich environment. Where at? Down in Texas. Oh, nice. Down in Texas. And uh, actually speared a hog down there, too. Hey, really that's fun, cool. Yeah. So for them, it got them hooked, and they want to hunt more now. Sure. And I see that. The, the only problem I do see with crossbows is people picking it up thinking it's a rifle when really it's an archery thing, even though it is super easy to, uh, I mean, I think I shot four bolts before mine was sighted in and sure, ready for those sure. guys to hunt. I see that as being like not a challenge anymore or, you know, what you can consider fair chase. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I like the aspect of it. I don't think it's something that I like to see somebody continually doing. I want to see them progress sure, and sure. get into it other ways and maybe even go gun hunting or something. But I think it is an awesome opportunity for people to get out there. And I know a lot of people don't like to hear that. And I make people mad when I talk about Absolutely, it. I'm like, you yeah. know what? <laughs> a crossbow is a great tool to get somebody outdoors. I don't care what they do with means of take as long as they're ethical when they do it. Man. They're respectful to that animal and the land that they're on. And I think that is the biggest key point that anybody can take away from it. Sure. And anybody that's negative about it, well, they don't realize that, like you said, we're losing that resource. Absolutely. And we want people out there no matter what, even if they are shooting a crossbow. And then you hear about people complaining in other states that now they're taking away resources because they're allowed. Now you're taking away tags from hunters that want to draw a tag if it's a draw system. And I can see a little bit of a problem with that, but we don't have to worry about that where we're at yet because i mean it's pretty much unlimited tags it for archery season. really is yeah. it really is the only thing i see as a problem is we make it so restrictive for out-of-state residents we're probably one of the most you can buy I an don't elk tag yeah you can buy an elk tag for yeah. the p- amount of money that you pay to go hunt two deer in illinois there's with a archery. reason most of these tv shows don't come help hunt illinois yeah it's, yeah. it's just, it's crazy to me. And I think that's something that we need to really look at, especially if we've got so many deer that we have unlimited tags, right? Sure, sure. Especially in the northern Illinois. And it may be crowded, but there's a lot of land that people there don't really cover. There really is, yes. And even like Midaywin is a huge one, mm-hmm. right? Yep. That is a giant piece of property. And I know for a fact there's a lot of spots that people don't go because they don't want to go two miles back and you can't cut a hole through a fence right. and climb underneath or right. do whatever. So there's, there's properties out there for sure. And I want to see more people go there. And I know there's a lot of guys that are public land nomads that go everywhere mm-hmm. except for Illinois because it's too expensive. <laughs> yep, yep. And I, I do want to kind of piggyback off the, the crossbow discussion we, we just yeah. had. I want to really emphasize that in the past two years, so what's it been? Uh, when that legislation first passed, allowing it's been probably five or six years. Five before it became full season. Yeah. yeah. And we hit an inflection point last year. Where we actually saw crossbows become a majority of the harvest over vertical bows. And that I, I anticipate that trend to only continue. And I, <laughs> I just wanted to, to really highlight that it really is 
a gateway opportunity for a lot of people. Yeah. And especially for, for those who may have a, a physical limitation. Um, I know they could obviously get some, some permits through a process historically. Right. But one of the big things in Illinois, especially about deer hunting, is the we, – we just really highlighted it. it. We're a very archery-dominated state. And if archery is not something that's in your wheelhouse, maybe you just don't have time, maybe you don't have the, the physical ability to do so – you are really restricted on how much you can actually hunt deer in this state compared to, to pretty much every other state. And that's where I think Illinois yeah. really shines with the crossbow is for those individuals who, in most states, they may just be a rifle hunter. They may just be a firearm hunter where they may get, you know, two or three weeks. In Illinois, you may get five days if you're lucky to win a lottery. And yeah. so crossbow really does open up a lot more opportunity for those individuals you know, again, I, I do want to emphasize you still need to practice with that equipment. It's not as easy as, as you may think. It still takes time to, to be competent, to become ethical with that specific, you know, method of take. But I, I really do think it, it's such a good gateway to get more people interested, to get more people out there, but also to give them a lot more time to hunt rather than just getting a shotgun or a firearm tag and have, you know, three or, or five days, depending what they draw. Now they get, you know, that, that full spread of several months. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, what, what's it look like uh, as far as uh, have you guys been keeping track with the whole rifle uh, season or whatever that is now? Yeah, so do you have any specific things about it? I'm, just, I'm kind of curious. I saw it, it definitely evolved and changed from what it, it initially did. was. Sure, it was sure. one little blurb in there, and now there's an entire section, I believe. But what's that look like for you guys educating others and trying to get people out and into the rifle or firearm season sure. now? So now for, for us as a program, we don't do a ton of firearm deer mentored hunts. A lot of it comes down to that that scalability concept, mm -hmm. and in Illinois, right, we have you know first yeah. firearm season, second firearm season. It's very hard to get mentors who are willing to give away their personal firearm season to go take somebody new hunting. So in terms of mentored hunts, it doesn't really impact us too much. Um, but we actually just filmed with one of the, the law enforcement conservation police officers just a few weeks ago. We're still cutting up the video, but doing a full breakdown on that, that rifle legislation, what's legal, what's not, and some, some kind of tips and, and techniques to make sure you're, you're compliant there. But what I'm really interested in is, is seeing how many first-year adopters we have. Um, I, I don't anticipate it to be a ton, but I think year over year we're going to start to see more and more, especially as, as you know, new, new calibers and new rounds come out that meet those specific criteria. I think we're going to start to see probably a lot more, a lot more people use them. But. So is there, do you think there's going, or is there going to be, because I know during firearm season now you're allowed to use that rifle, mm -hmm. which was normally just a shotgun. Sure. And then now you have muzzleloader. Is muzzleloader still exclusively muzzleloader? Uh, I believe it can be used in both. Okay. Yes. And then is there going to be like a separate rifle season as well that's like longer period? than just As of right now, no. And yeah. I, I haven't heard anything from the back end that would, that would kind of allude to that either. Yeah. It just sounds like it, it's allowing a, a greater breadth of what you can use during, during firearm season. And we're seeing this in, in other states across the country too. Missouri, in the past five or six years, they historically had a muzzleloader season, but they kind of revamped that whole thing and are now calling it al alternative season so there's a lot of different methods of take that you can kind of use in that quote-unquote muzzleloader season so i think it's it's all these states realizing that we're losing hunters and just trying to nitpick it hey maybe if we open up and allow people to use this maybe that'll increase us a little yeah. bit maybe if we can use this and just kind of little baby steps here and there but yeah i almost wish honestly it was like a week and a half was gun season and then it was done and over with rather than breaking up two, sure, two of my sure. weekends or three of my yep, weekends. Yep. And then I if don't you disagree. don't have a tag on right. public land, you you're can't out. hunt, right. you're out. Right. 
So it's like, man, you're killing my opportunities here <laughs> to drag my bow out and go out Absolutely. Into, the, into the public. But uh, So what do you uh, think about like means of access and stuff like that as far as land for people to get on it? Do you guys have an opinion on that as far as like being able to access from water? I know a lot of places say you can't access from water and some of the best access points are from Agreed. water it's Agreed. just like to me it doesn't make much sense that you have to park in a parking lot rather than a boat launch i agree and uh, unfortunately from from my understanding of, of some of the legislation there when illinois was first kind of settled there was such a it, it we have such a different history than pretty much all the other states <laughs> surrounding us and that's what really led to the the waterway rights we have and unfortunately that changed for the worse correct for some people correct I guess. If you're For a landowner people, yes. and you're trying to protect your fossils and resources right. or whatever, different story. Right. But, yeah. and, and unfortunately, I think the cat's almost out of the bag. I, I don't think that's ever going to shift. I think it's, yeah. it's so ingrained in the way that, that land is owned in this, this state that it would take a monumental effort to get that changed, unfortunately. <laughs> but again, I, I completely agree. Waterway access is, is one of my favorite ways to access, yeah. especially we were, we were scouting a, a piece of public land in East Central Illinois, and we found this really nice area that's kind of an oxbow. And it just turned, we think it's going to be one of these buck nests. We've got, you know, already a couple cameras running this summer, and, you know, eight or nine different really nice bucks are, are using it. The easiest way to access it is going to be by water. Yeah. Now, we're kind of lucky in that this property is right across the river is also a piece of public land and so we we are legally allowed to, to access okay. via water uh, but but kind of going back to the whole concept of access it is by far the number one constraint of both new hunters and existing hunters in the state uh, the human dimensions lab at the university of illinois does these hunter harvest surveys and so if you've ever received a, an envelope you know post hunting season that asks you a, a couple questions it's normally like a five or six page questionnaire asks you about mm -hmm. your harvest you know what kept you out these type of things, it's always access is that, that big, big constraint for people. And so for us as a program, obviously we're just three people. It's really hard to, to increase access. But what we're trying to focus on is to allow kind of like what you mentioned at the very start, some of these county lands that may not have a deer hunting program, but know that they have an overabundance of yeah. deer herds. And so then it's our job to come in as a program and say, hey, can we work to develop a mentored hunt? Uh, we actually just started one at Kickapoo State Park or Kickapoo State Recreation Area in Vermilion County, Illinois. About half of that Illinois DNR property is non-hunted. It's kind of a campground that's used for other user groups. Right. What they have found is during deer season, what happens? Well, all the deer go to the non-hunting mm -hmm. side, and so it just becomes yeah. overbrowsed. And so we partnered with Illinois DNR that said, hey, can we do a mentored hunt in this opportunity? A, we're increasing opportunity. We're giving more people the chance to get out hunting. But B, we're meeting their land management goals by reducing that doe population in that specific part of the park. And so it, it's an area that's full of campgrounds. We're hunting in campgrounds. Yep. Some shots are going over a road, but it's successful. Uh, we're getting a lot of new hunters out of it, and a lot of hunters are, are getting their first harvest through that program. And so that that's kind of our big push in terms of access is to not necessarily focus on acquiring new lands, but just increase opportunity at already existing public lands. Yeah. So well, that's like Kankakee Star State Park is a prime example. Absolutely. Yeah. You see, you cannot hunt a certain section of it because it was by a prison. And it's oh, a fisherman's okay. parking lot. Sure. That prison has been vacant for 10 years sure, now. Sure, And the land is overgrown, and it's state land, right? 
and then the state park owns the rest of it. Yep. But you cannot hunt it, and all those deer flock to that in the campground, and it's the most like the densest population I've seen standing in that field <laughs> that sure. I've seen in that area, and it's like you can't. Well, maybe hunt that's it. another one to focus on yeah, for, for this next round. Yeah, because it's, it's crazy. such a, a unique model in that. Again, we're not. There's not a ton of overhead. We're not leasing land. We're not buying new land. All we're saying is, hey. This is this here. This is here. Yeah. Let's put together a program. And the way we do it for the, this specific hunt is we have uh, six blinds set up. Every hunter gets that specific blind. Who draws gets that for five days. And we evenly split it so that we have half youth and half adult. So we're kind of meeting both those those niches. And we act yeah. as mentors for those who don't have, have a mentor. Someone's already got a mentor. When they apply, they can just check a box, I've got a mentor. And then if they're awarded a blind, they'll just get to go. Um, so it, it's a really unique model, and, and it's been quite successful. We've had a lot of harvest through it, um, and a lot of people have already come back and say, hey, I'd, I'd like to volunteer the next round and be a mentor. And so not only are we, you know, increasing opportunity, but we're rebuilding that, that social capital for these new hunters. You know, I grew up, we'd go to a check station. You'd talk to all hunters. Mm -hmm. You'd hear their stories. You'd see all the deer. Those are gone. And yeah. so as a new hunter, it's very hard to get your foot in the door and to start kind of identifying yourself as a hunter and identifying yourself as, yes, I'm now a member of the hunting community. And these mentored opportunities just are, are such a perfect segue for that. Yeah, when you say that, the check station, when I was in high school, I worked at a bait shop. Oh, sure. So they got us all together, all the employees. They had the DNR employee come there. We had the key ring, the giant key uh -huh. ring with all the jaw bones <laughs> on it, like you have on your table over there. Yep. And uh, they'd explain it to us. This is how you age it. This is what you do. You write it down. And then at the end of the year they'd, or end of the season, they'd come and pick up that journal of all the deer that you logged in. Sure. And I remember just doing that. And it's like, yeah, you don't have that you anymore. Don't. You don't. It's all online check-on. You could do it on your phone yep. or whatever. You know? it's, yep. it's completely changed. Completely. The dynamic has changed. And you don't have the interaction anymore right. like you used to. Right. Yeah. And that, that's why I think mentored hunts are just so valuable because not only are you getting a new person out there, providing them some, some level of confidence, that's one of their, their biggest constraints is even if they've come to some of our workshops and they've shot archery, we've, we've got them up in a tree stand, they've done all this, they're still like, yeah, but I just don't personally feel like I'm ready. And just having somebody right next to them to just help them with those little decisions that they, that they need to make when you're out hunting. Like yeah. I, I took a, a new hunter out on one of those Kickapoo ones last year. His name was Minaj. Um, he's a... Uh, an immigrant over from India, currently on a visa status. So his, you know, experience with hunting is completely different from mine. But when he got in the blind, we had, you know, about 12 or 13 does out in front of us. And I'm sitting there like, hey, come on, let's take a shot. Let's pick one. This one's, you know, perfect. And he just couldn't get over that level of I don't quite feel ready yet. Oh. And so it took him about another five to ten minutes just to calm his breath, collect himself. And luckily we had a nice doe walk in, you know, within – 10 yards of the blind or so and he made a perfect shot but again it's it's these things that myself as a hunter i don't even think of i've been through right. this so long that i can't it's very hard to put myself in in their shoes and so these mentored hunts kind of allow us to do that to see the to see what the landscape of hunting looks like through their lens yeah i totally get it i mean the first animal i took was in my teens or well early i guess early adulthood but I'd killed small game and everything mm -hmm. since a child. So you don't really th you think about taking the life, but it's not as heavy on you sure, sure. As, as if you've never taken one until later on into your adult life. Right. And I never really thought about that that much either until I took my friends hunting. And then they're like, I, I just need a minute yeah, to yeah. process this. Absolutely. You know? yep. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's, I get it. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, and I think it's pretty cool. And I always try and teach them, you know, to 
hold that animal in a high reverence and, and give it respect that it needs to. So I think that's a that's a good aspect. So you mentioned a little bit about the um, the mentors. What is the criteria? What if say somebody does want to become a mentor? Mm-hmm. What what do they need to do? So we do a, a lot of personal vetting. Uh, we don't run any background checks or, or anything. Uh, we're starting to kind of formalize the approach. And this is the big challenge with mentored hunts kind of across the country. Every state deals with this in a little bit different way is the, the whole concept of liability. And oh, so yeah. th- that's, that's been our biggest hang-up right now. And so a lot of what we do is very one-on-one interactions with, with individuals. And not so much that we say, hey, we've got a mentor for you. Here's their number. But what we really try to do is to get those two individuals in the same place at the same time. Get new hunters in the same place as existing hunters. And a lot of times those relationships just happen themselves. Uh, for instance, we just had um, kind of our, our first, what we tried is a, a trivia night. So just a social event designed to get hunters back together and we invited new hunters and existing hunters and out of that trivia night there was several mentored hunts that got planned just right then and there go talk to somebody and say hey i'm a new hunter i'm looking to try this and and boom things get things get planned but if you're really interested in becoming a a mentor with us one of our biggest events is coming up on september 23rd Uh, it's at deacon's restaurant and bar at the golf farm it's in wakanda illinois but we call this event illinois hunt camp and if you've ever been to a typical NWTF banquet, a typical Pheasants Forever banquet, you're kind of going to understand the model to some extent. But instead of really focused on the gear, on winning firearms and winning trail cameras, tree stands, what we try to do is we put together a package of outdoor experiences, be it mentored hunts, be it scouting trips, be it processing. A lot of them are, are mentored hunts and designed to then allocate those at hunt camp through you know different lotteries, raffles, and games. So instead of winning you know, a shotgun or something, you're getting the chance to win a mentored hunt that you're going to get to go on and, and take that, that next step. So if you're interested, uh, please reach out to us at any time because we're always looking for, for more mentored hunts to, to put together for, for hunt camp because we try to shoot for about 50 to 60 uh, hunts to, to give away at that, um, and hopefully we'll, we'll meet that by September 23rd. Okay. So does the state allocate tags for this then? Uh, not currently. Not currently. So they still need to purchase a tag? Correct. Or, I mean, are most of them – Archery, then? The vast majority are going to be archery, absolutely. Now, we we do get quite a bit of, like, upland hunting as well as small game. Um, So, for deer, it's primarily uh, going to be archery. But, obviously, with upland, waterfowl, and and small game, there's there's other options there, too. So, when you talked about, like, the the Kickapoo recreation Mm -hmm. area that you use, um, is that something to where maybe the state could do? I mean, if you – And we've actually had conversations – Actually, this past week about because that there exact aren't idea. any tags for that anyway. Correct. You know what I'm saying. So why couldn't that be an opportunity to produce more firearm tags and just allocate them to these special programs? Sure. It seems like it, a logical absolutely. idea to me. And a lot <laughs> of it depends on. Who do we need on, to lobby for yeah, that? Yeah. That's, Again, that's the question. And, and you kind of hinted at the at the the exact concept right there. Is a lot of it depends on the legislation that's already on the books and how that that's written. Now there are some really cool ideas that other states are doing, kind of around that concept. Uh, like Pennsylvania, I heard that they're wanting to kind of revamp the whole concept of a youth season and kind of make it more of a new hunter season. So less about age, more about experience. Now, obviously, if you're youth, even if you've been hunting for seven or eight years, you could still go under that, that youth hunt right. as long as you meet those age requirements. But they're trying to increase even more opportunity through, you know, already established kind of quote-unquote new hunting uh, season so there are, there are quite a few options out there I know Wisconsin also they have through the general assembly they actually allocate a certain number of permits for 
uh, R3 effort, so for like a learn to hunt, mentored hunts. And so that that's certain something we're certainly working on. We actually just had a meeting about it last week. So yeah, definitely no, on our radar, and, and we're pushing forward on it. What kind of classes do you guys offer or like? I know you talked about like the trivia night and stuff sure. like that, but as far as like educational stuff Absolutely. that people go to, I've seen you have some clinics here and there, like placement clinics and stuff mm-hmm. like that. How, do, how does that work? How does it, you know, one, go to one of those and then just like kind of an idea of how many that you guys actually offer different sure. ones. Sure. So kind of our, our bread and butter is what we call our standard learn to hunt workshops. So we actually are getting ready to kick off our big season pretty much starting <laughs> the day we leave here from Deer and Beer Fest uh, with our Learn to Hunt Deer workshops. And these typically run from about 10 a.m. to 3.30. And they're, again, kind of designed for if you have zero experience, this is the clinic for you. You're going to learn about the basic equipment. You're going to learn about the basic regulations. You're going to learn about processing, about the ecology of the animal. That's one thing we really focus on is understanding that game animals behavior so that you can make you know decisions in your your hunt planning processes and so it's really designed to go from kind of start to finish now obviously we can't cover the (laughs) the whole gamut of of hunting in you know a five to six hour workshop but it's designed to give you at least a little bit of of information you start to feel confident you start to to kind of foster that that interest a little bit and we try to make it very fun and enjoyable and so one thing we really strive to do is at these workshops be as hands-on as as possible we don't want to sit there and just lecture and give a presentation for five hours we want to get a tree stand in your hand and have you go put it up we want to go take a walk through the woods and show what a deer bed looks like rather than just showing what a picture looks like right show what it actually looks like on the ground and so these are kind of our, our basic workshops now we have a learn to hunt deer we have learned to hunt waterfowl. We have learned to hunt small game, which covers squirrel, rabbit, dove. And then we have a learned to hunt upland series as well. And those, we, we really try to partner with like a Pheasants Forever chapter mm-hmm. or some of these other NGOs to try to get a dog handler out there with dogs so we can go through that whole process of showing how to hunt with a dog, how to hunt without a dog. Here are some things to, to kind of keep in mind. Get you, get you a buddy that's not afraid to run through brush. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you don't have a dog... Get a crazy friend. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But so those are kind of our basic learn to hunt workshops. And at the very end of the workshop, we always try to, to have a discussion or a demonstration about field dressing and processing. Obviously, with deer, it's a little bit more difficult to find that many carcasses. Um, I mean, you guys probably work pretty closely with the DNR then yeah, and yeah. get like uh, seized ones and things and like we, that. And we that certainly have, have at times. Yeah. Yeah. We use a lot of roadkill for, for right. demonstrations as well. Um, but especially for like the waterfowl and small game, we will bring several carcasses. So you get to, again, not only hear the steps and, and see the steps, but you get to do it yourself. And, and that's been one of the most interesting aspects of, of this program for me is how much people get hung up on the field dressing component. Now, I was, again, luckily, I grew up in a hunting family. Yeah. So when yeah. I shot my first deer, my dad said, I'll do this one for you. The rest you get to do on your own. So I never really had to put myself in that perspective of, oh, my gosh, now I've got this giant deer dead at my feet. And now what do I do? <laughs> and so we really try to focus on that aspect, too, of how to prepare for not just prepare for the hunt, but prepare for that inevitable harvest and what to what to do, how to be ready, how to have all your equipment and, and yeah. kind of understand. So those are our basic learn to hunt field workshops. And ideally, at the end of those, we try to, again, scalability is difficult for us, mm-hmm. but we try to connect those interested participants who want to take that next step. We try to connect them with a local chapter or a, a local mentor who can kind of help foster that, that interest a little bit more. Yeah. One of the things that I find kind of crazy is the fact that most people 
take their deer to a processor. It's, yeah. And somebody getting into it maybe doesn't have a lot of funds. That can be pretty cost prohibitive. Absolutely. To realize, oh, my gosh, I've got to pay somebody $200 to chop up my deer and package right. it for right. me. And maybe and a get lot your of deer guys, back. Yeah, a lot of guys I know don't even process their own deer. And like you said, you don't even get your own deer back. That's one of the things that bothers me the most is somebody with a diesel can in the back of sure, the truck. Sure, sure leaking yep. and sliding around there and then they're driving it you know taking it to a processor and then my deer is going to get mixed with absolutely that? No, thank you absolutely. not to me i mean but it's just fascinating and to me i want to break down that animal i want to be intimate with every piece i want to know that i trimmed 100%. it just the way i like yep. it and make sure it's clean and it's done right yep and, and what i really like about that aspect too is is in terms of meal planning if i get a, a deer from a processor i may get back a chunk of backstrap that's 12 inches long what the heck am i going to do with that right. yeah. where if it's just me processing it i get to put it in the exact package how i want it yep. I, I already know how i'm going to cook it and so and we actually uh, just to, to kind of carry on that discussion we host uh learn to process deer workshops we're planning a few of those this fall where we're going to go through that entire process of here's a deer carcass how do we break it down? How do we quarter it? How do we skin it? How do we package it? And how do we prepare it? So uh, those, we don't have any, any dates solidified currently. We're still working to, to try to source some deer for those. That's kind of our biggest challenge. But yeah. for, for mid-October, November, we will have several of those kind of scattered across the state. So say somebody wants to donate a deer mm -hmm. because they may have like uh, nuisance tags sure. or something like that on their property. What can they do or how, how do you want them to handle that so they can maybe save one for you? Absolutely, yeah. It? If you want to reach out to us, I would probably recommend reaching out to us pre-harvest. Right. Uh, so don't go out and shoot one and then call me and say, hey, now what do I do? <laughs> reach out to us beforehand and we'll kind of come up with a, with a nice plan. We work uh, quite closely uh, with the vet med lab at the University of Illinois. They kind of do the state CWD testing and a lot of that stuff. But they have a really substantial walk-in freezer, and we're trying to, to reserve some space for that for this upcoming year. So hopefully we'll be able to accept deer like that, keep them cold until we, we get to a place where we're ready for them for the workshop. Yeah. Do you feel that that's a big challenge or a lot of people uh, see the CWD as like a barrier as well? I don't think so. I, I, think, I think a lot of new hunters, I don't want to say they gloss over it, but – they don't necessarily understand the ramifications of what a lot of those words mean. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't think it's necessarily that they, they don't care. I think it's just a, a, an overall lack of, of education. Um, yeah. But there are, there are some people who come to workshops already, you know, fired up and ready. Oh, what do I do if I, I'm in the CWD area? Is it even worth hunting? And so we do have those conversations quite a bit that, you know, currently there's no research that says it's transmissible to humans. But if you do, you know, end up harvesting one and it tests positive, you don't have to legally eat it you can legally get rid of it dnr will give you a new tag you know that that whole spiel so even though they didn't give me a new tag when covid shut down ah, my hunts i know same <laughs> i'll tell you i i finally <clears throat> drew the one turkey hunt that i've been trying to draw draw since i moved to illinois it was the year of covid i didn't yep. get to do it me too same thing yeah that was my first gun season since oh. the initial turkey season back in what was it like 2002 maybe Some something like yeah, that yeah like that was my first gun tag that I drew in that long. And I put in for like three years before that trying sure. to get that piece of property sure. and never got it. And oh, then and then I remember just the state was like, nope, we're not in the business of refunds, blah, yeah. blah, blah. I'm like, okay, well, are you at least using my money? Right, <laughs> right. Which was very frustrating because every other state, you know, was pushing people to get outdoors. And yeah. Or do I still get a chance next year? At right. This, you know what right. I mean? Right. Do I get put in a special lottery? <laughs> yeah. Nothing. That burned me a little bit. Same. I will say that. I won't disagree. Yeah. <laughs> 
So do you guys do like turkey hunting clinics? And stuff yes. Like now, that now for turkey, we don't do a ton of mentored hunts because, again, the way permits are allocated is very difficult to plan a mentored hunt six months in advance on somebody who may draw a, a tag. Now, we, we have worked with some outfitters in the past that have allowed us to send students to them, and they kind of take them on a, a one-on-one mentored hunt. Uh, we actually did that with NWTF. I forget the, the exact outfitter we went down with in, in southern Illinois, but he got to go on a great turkey hunt. Uh, so we've done quite a bit of that, but we really focus on, you know, workshops and stuff for, for spring turkey. Now, the, the big challenge with, with turkey hunting is kind of what we just hinted at, permit allocations mm-hmm. and, and getting a permit. And so for us, it is quite challenging because let's say you're interested in turkey hunting. When do you usually start thinking about turkey hunting? It's probably March, right? Well, if yeah. you didn't put in for the application, too late. it's almost yeah. too late. And so we, we do a, a lot of, you know, focused efforts around that time trying to just remind people, hey, please put in your, your turkey application. Uh, but we usually host, oh, probably... 10 learn to hunt turkey workshops, you know, in the, in the spring to get ready. A ton of webinars uh, about turkey hunting, about decoy placement, about calling, uh, those type of things. So we do quite a bit of content around turkey hunting, but the biggest challenge for us has been mentor hunts. Now, we certainly do a lot of one-on-one mentor hunts where we'll, you know, somebody will reach out to us and say, hey, I drew this permit. Perfect. We can go. We'll help. Um, but in terms of an overall planned thing, it's a, a little bit more difficult around turkey than it is for, for some other species. I always state. encourage people to get a fall tag. Absolutely. If it's available, Absolutely. get a fall tag. Yes. Honestly, the only turkeys I've ever killed oh, really? were in the fall. Okay. They were with the bow. One was with the long bow on the ground, pretty cool. And the other one That's was with fantastic. my compound out of the tree stand. That's so, cool. I mean, if the opportunity's there yes. and the property that you're on allows it, I mean, for five dollars, I think yeah. Yeah. You, you're not coming home and put it in your pocket. If a turkey walks past you, yeah. is that something you encourage people Absolutely. to do? Or, okay. Absolutely, yeah. And and Jason, uh, who's kind of sitting right next to me, doesn't have a mic on, but he's turkey killing machine in the fall. Yeah. That's his jam. Yeah, yeah, so I, I highly encourage it, especially if you're already out there deer hunting. Like you said, it's five dollars. Yeah, if you don't get it, you're probably going to see turkey, and you're going to really wish you spent that five dollars. Yeah. Do you guys? Uh, maybe you've heard more than I have on it, but like an actual population decline in the state of Illinois uh, around turkey. Yeah. So Illinois has been. Again, it kind of goes back to that, that COVID year. We were saved a little bit from some of the turkey decline that other states are, are starting to see. Uh, we were just actually at a, a Midwest Fish and Wildlife Conference earlier. I guess it was January, February time frame. Um, but there was a lot of discussion about the, this turkey decline. Um, a lot of states are really now starting to throw research dollars at it to try to understand it a little bit more. Um, I did have a conversation with a few of the turkey biologists and kind of one of the, the leading theories currently is the overall lack of insect population mm-hmm. you know i remember as a kid driving 50 miles you'd have to clean your windshield yeah. now I, you don't i honestly and, think the atrazine and the other things are affecting the turkey population and not only that and i've said it before but and maybe you guys don't want to comment on this and sure, you don't sure. have to but the fact that all these things are putting on the fields are affecting the wildlife because it's affecting the food sources. And believe it or not, there is links to sterility in not only humans, but all these animals as well. And you're seeing where normally it was six eggs and, and six poults or sure, nine poults. Sure. You're seeing three or four. And then it's kind of like, wow, maybe there is something there. Yeah. And then not to mention, though, I mean, there has been a huge increase in bobcats and mountain lions in this state as well. So if you've got these other apex predators now for the Midwest, 
I mean, that's going to bring it down quite a bit too. Absolutely. I, I kind of want to bring back that, that, <clears throat> that the insect population because this is something I've really noticed just in my own anecdotal experience. I used to walk, you know, through a prairie in the spring, and you would just see grasshoppers and everywhere bugs would be. And what are what are hens feeding on to get that protein for yep. egg development? Right there. And if we're starting to see this this decline already, it's it's getting a little little hairy, but I know there are a lot of states that are starting to dump a lot of research dollars to try to understand what's causing this decline. And I think like you, you kind of mentioned there, it's going to be kind of a multifaceted reason that's going to, to probably rely on a little bit of, of chemicals interacting with insect populations, a little bit of habitat stuff, right. a little bit of apex predator stuff. I think there's going to be a lot of different variables that, that really come into play there. Yeah. But, I, I'm just kind of curious, what do you guys see as far as, like, mountain lion tags? I'm sure you're probably a little bit more on the pulse than uh, – I mean, not mountain lion tags, uh, bobcat, bobcat tags. Sure. I mean, you see, it's, it, for a while there, it was pretty much like you could get one, then it was mm-hmm. a lottery, and, and you can't draw again for, like, three years or something right. like that. Um, do you see that changing in the future as the population increases even more? Uh, I, I can't <laughs> speak specifically on the population in Illinois, but just viewing how other states – have kind of handled this situation. I do think so. Um, like Wisconsin, for instance, they had a very similar model to, to Illinois where there was, you know, maybe a thousand or 2000 permits available every single year, more and more people started putting in for them and putting in for them and putting in for them. And it almost became like this, this ethos around itself, like, Oh, you got a Bobcat permit. Yeah. And to the point now where they are increasing the number of, of tags allocation, just because there's more people interested in them, there likely are more in, in some of these landscapes. So I could see Illinois in in you know sometime revisiting that number. Again, I don't I don't have any any background information on what that population actually looks like, um, but I know personally I'm I'm anxious to get a bobcat tag in my perm or in my pocket. Yeah, it's like been one. been a few I, years. I haven't seen any on like the, most of the properties in northern Illinois, but you start heading a little bit further south. Sure. Yep. And yep. there's definitely sign. I've I've got sure. a few a few trail cam pictures yeah 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 that's pretty cool so if somebody wants to get into the learn to hunt program they want to find uh different classes Mm -hmm. maybe in their area or wherever where do they go how do they find that stuff the easiest way is to visit our website at learn to hunt il.com you can also just google illinois learn to hunt it'll pull that up right away um but what we really want to highlight is no matter your experience level, a lot of our content, especially our, on, a, on the webinar side, is not necessarily as, as devoted to new hunters. There's always different things to learn. Like, for instance, one of our, our deer stand placement webinars, it's kind of become one of our, our favorites because it, it really dives in to how to look at imagery, how to look at the landscape, how to look at the sign and basically develop a hunt planning process around what you're seeing on the landscape. Yeah. And so I highly encourage anyone to, who's interested to check out our YouTube channel. If you just search Illinois Learn to Hunt on YouTube, you'll find all of our webinar recordings from the past, you know, three, four years. There, there's quite a few of them on there. Uh, and pretty much every every topic is discussed at some point, whether it's waterfall identification, whether it's how to, how to read the wind for an upland hunt. Uh, we, we have a, a webinar that basically covers covers most of it. Awesome. That's awesome. I like what you guys are doing. It's good to see that, you know, you're educating and recruiting and do, practicing the three R's. Um, thank you for coming on Absolutely. and sharing Thanks all the knowledge. Us. Yeah, it's been good. Absolutely. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. 
And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Thank you.